Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. This week, Evan McMullen, independent candidate for President of the United States, is my guest. He's a conservative national security expert who holds a dim view of Donald Trump and the politicians who support him. If you remain silent now and are only thoughtful and critical after November 8th when Donald Trump has won or lost, whatever happens, what credibility do you have? There's so much more good stuff here, including the need for a new party and whether he thinks Trump is an agent of Vladimir Putin. Plus, we talk about this. When you hear the phrase Black Lives Matter, what do you hear? I hear a statement of fact first. That's what I hear. Listen to McMullen recount which movie inspired him to join the CIA, deflect my question about a certain covert operation, and describe his hardscrabble life that preceded all of that. And you can do that right now. Evan McMullen, thanks so much for being on Cape Up. Great to be with you. So... The interesting thing about your candidacy is how many months or weeks old is it? It's about five weeks old, only. Only five weeks. And the thing that has fascinated me is that there was another person who was touted as sort of the conservative alternative to Donald Trump, a man by the name of David French, writer at the National Review. David French then decides, eh, I'm not going to run. You then appear and say, I'm going to run for president. You throw your hat in the ring. And instead of the skepticism that greeted David French, you're taken seriously. Has this surprised you? Yeah, I think it is. It is surprising in a way, I guess I'd have to say. But the difference between my launch and what happened with David French was that he didn't own it because he wasn't going to do it. And I think that was the difference. Hmm. When, When it leaked that I was running, I had actually made the decision to run. And, and so I could own it and appear and make the case. And I think that probably was the difference. So why did you decide to run? I decided to run because I firmly believe that this country needs better leadership. And I think it's obvious. It becomes more and more obvious every day, every week of this election, even before the election. This country needs better leadership. I, I feel like we have leaders today that put themselves first too often. They may even pursue office to empower themselves, not to serve. I look at Donald Trump, for example. This is somebody who I think has promoted himself his entire life. But here he is running, and you have people following and supporting him, people in elected office, people who know what a danger he is to this country and how much damage he's doing to the country, both the promotion of the racist alt-right movement as well as uh, ushering in this authoritarian uh, view of leadership that he admires so, so much. Um, this is all dangerous to our country, and yet we see elected officials who claim to want to serve the people and the country's best interests fall in line and support him, even though they'll say privately they know he's dangerous. And that's why I stood up. That's the big picture reason. Of course, we have electoral goals and long-term goals about the conservative movement. I think we need a new conservative movement. Uh, But somebody needed to step up and stand for what was right and for better leadership in this country immediately. What does that new conservative movement look like to you? Well, Whether I am elected or am not elected, the new conservative movement, I think, would be a movement that would embrace the cause of individual liberty. I think the Republican Party and certainly the Democratic Party have have not done that in quite some time. 
But I also think it would be a movement that would embrace diversity, that would, um, that would be inclusive, inclusive of people of different races, inclusive of, uh, of people of different religions and ethnic backgrounds. Uh, right now, the, the Republican Party alienates these people, as well as women and people with disabilities and so on. There's no reason for that. I believe that true conservatism, which is the cause of liberty, as, as Benjamin Franklin described it, uh, described liberty in particular mm-hmm. as a cause. He actually, he called it the cause of all mankind. I believe that's what liberty is. I believe that's what true conservatism stands for. Now, but the Republican Party, I mean, whose mm-hmm. base is conservative, mm-hmm. they nominated this guy who is antithetical to everything that you just said. Mm-hmm. So how then do you bring those folks along? Well, it's a good question. I think that w- leaders of this country do need to try to bring those people along. That's what leadership is all about. The Republican conservative leadership should have done that a long time ago. That is, confronted the alt-right movement, the racism in our country, and brought us forward from that point. That needed to happen. It didn't happen. And that left the party, the Republican Party, uh, vulnerable to what I'd consider a hostile takeover by Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So what needs to happen? Yes, our leaders need to stand up to that. That's what I'm doing in this election. Uh, And I think it's important to draw that distinction right now. If you remain silent now and are only thoughtful and critical after November 8th, when Donald Trump has won or lost, whatever happens, what credibility do you have? Where were you during the election when it was difficult, when you would be criticized and attacked for standing up to racism and Donald Trump's bigoted campaign? Where were you? So that's the question I ask the Republican leaders now. Where are they? What are they standing for? Now, as, as far as what happens after this election, uh, we certainly, I certainly will be involved, in, regardless of wh- whether I win or lose, in, in that kind of leadership. Uh, but I'm not so sure the Republican Party is going to be able to reform. In fact, I'm pessimistic about that, given their track record. They learned these lessons after 2012, too, and now have doubled down on exactly the opposite of what they learned. So I believe that the time has come for a new conservative movement in this country, and that may involve a new party. Hmm. A new party that um, picks up dis- disaffected Republicans? It would be a party that first would, would pick up uh, Republicans who are committed to the Constitution and to individual liberty, and it would also pick up Republicans who are uh, uh, tolerant of other races and religions and, and respectful of all people. Okay, so on this point— Make the case to Latinos for Mm -hmm. why they should vote for you. Mm -hmm. Well, the case to to Latinos, and I would say to all people, is the following. You know, we're a nation of 330 million people, so many people, and 50 states. And we all have different ideas and different backgrounds and different dreams. It's natural that in this country— that we would have this kind of diversity. And in fact, our founders, how you know, they weren't perfect and, and neither was the beginning of our country. There were some flaws. Many people had to fight for freedom well after uh, our Declaration of Independence. And so the, my case is the same to everyone. We are all different and that's natural. Our unofficial motto until the 1950s was e pluribus unum, the idea that we would all be different but unified, I believe, in respect for each other's liberties and unified as, as Americans. But that's my message for everyone, African-Americans, Hispanics, women, white men, all of us, 
All of us are entitled to this liberty, which I believe is God-given and enshrined in our Constitution, enshrined in our Declaration of Independence, and we need to honor it. Okay, so that's a, a, a broad declaration to the American people, all mm-hmm. American people, but mm-hmm. specific communities have specific concerns. And sure. I know you just said that that message applies to everyone, including African Americans. Mm-hmm. But as we've seen over the last two years, there are some specific things that African Americans sure, sure are, are concerned about. Yeah. Um, when you hear the phrase Black Lives Matter, what mm-hmm. do you hear? I hear a statement of fact first. That's what I hear. As a white male, there are certain challenges that African Americans face that I don't understand because I I haven't lived them. And I hear, for example, I have a a friend that I served with in the CIA who's an African American, and he's a conservative, and he once told me that uh, he'll walk across a crosswalk, for example, and hear doors lock. And that, when I heard that for the first time, that woke me up. And, and I think there are other challenges that minorities and African-Americans in particular and Hispanics face in this country that, that white Americans don't always understand. That's natural. It's okay. But we need to try to understand those challenges, and then we need to feed that information into specific policies. So with regard to Black Lives Matter and police brutality and all of that, I think we've got some work to do. I think it, it starts with leadership that it adopts an understanding tone uh, that will recognize other people's challenges and not be threatened by them. And we'll do something to help, and we'll try to understand. That's the first thing. We don't see that tone in Donald Trump. Then I think we need very specific policies to break this cycle of of poverty in in some minority communities. I think it starts with education. I think that's a big, big deal. I think it's about also government regulation. When it takes, you know, when when somebody wants to start a small business braiding hair, for example, and they got to go through 1,500 hours of training with the local, with the city before they can get certified to do that, that's unacceptable, especially when it takes maybe 40 hours to get it or 100 hours to get a real estate license, whatever it is. It's unacceptable that that would be the case. So, yes, there are very specific policies that need to change. Our anti-poverty programs have been so ineffective. That's an area of a lot of passion for me. We can go into that. And what about criminal justice reform? I know there, you didn't say much that's or a anything big, on that. Well, yeah, that's true, but it's a, it's a big issue, and I'm in favor of it. Actually, that's gaining bipartisan support. So I see that as less controversial. Uh, in my view, some of the things that need to happen, or one of the things, would be uh, we need to stop uh, imprisoning people for nonviolent drug crimes. What happens when we do that is we pull oftentimes men out of families and then their children, you know, whether they're wed or unwed families, their children are, are left without a father or a mother. And that, that, that creates a cycle, I think, of poverty and, and a, you know, a, a set of disadvantaged youth that uh, that that is harmful to our country. So I think that's one thing that needs to happen. You know what's interesting? Your your example of braiding hair and government mm-hmm. regulation made me think of Arthur Brooks, the mm-hmm. the um, president of the American Enterprise Institute, and his book, The Conservative Heart. Arthur gave this very impassioned talk mm-hmm. about where conservatism, where the country should be, where conservatism mm-hmm. should be, and when he was over. This overwhelmingly liberal crowd was just sort of stunned into silence. And even mm-hmm. I had to say, that's actually something I could get with. Mm-hmm. What you just said in that example made me think, wait, so Evan McMullen is like an Arthur Brooks conservative. Yes, that's correct. 
Uh, yeah, that is absolutely correct. That's the way to think of me. I, I have a lot of respect for Arthur Brooks. Uh, I've also read his book. Uh, you, you know, he, he is somebody who has the right vision for America, the right vision of conservatism. It's also interesting that we were, we were both raised in the Seattle area. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's yeah. right. But you mm-hmm. don't have as colorful uh, history as, as he does. I have a different kind of colorful history, I would say. <laughs> I'm, not, sometimes, I'm not quite as hip as Arthur is, I think. But, um, but we both have unique histories. We both sort of bounced around and done different things mm-hmm. in life. And, and uh, I think both settled on, on a strong passion and a desire to be a force for good in this world. Well, we're going to get Arthur Brooks in a future episode of Cape Up. He doesn't know it yet, Great. But, it, but it's going to happen. And I do want to get into your colorful background. But mm-hmm. I, I, I want to, before we do that, talk foreign policy. And I started with domestic policy because all the interviews with you you. are about foreign policy, given your Mm -hmm. CIA background, Mm -hmm. a national security background. I'm just going to throw out country names. And I want to hear what a President McMullen would do. Mm -hmm. Syria. Mm -hmm. Syria. Uh, First of all, what I would do is have a comprehensive strategy, which I don't think we have now. That comprehensive strategy would involve uh, constraining Assad's ability to attack Syrian civilians. Uh, that uh, policy would involve uh, more aggressive airstrikes against ISIS. It would involve greater support for our friendly forces on the ground, including the moderate uh, rebels. Uh, and we would, we would go about uh, the business of, of tamping down on violence in that country and the flow of re- refugees in that way. It must start with a, a strategy, though. We, our allies in the region don't think we have a comprehensive strategy. What we do have, have for a strategy, they don't support because it doesn't have anything to do with stopping Assad's brutal massacre of Syrians, which is creating the refugee flows and creating an environment in which ISIS and al-Qaeda thrive. So we've, we've got to, Assad must, must leave. I believe the way to do that is to constrain him, empower his foes, uh, and then negotiate his departure. But there are conflicting agendas there. Mm-hmm. Um, Turkey, NATO mm-hmm. ally, mm-hmm. Um, is crucial to the fight. But in addition to going after ISIS, they're also going after the Kurds. Mm-hmm. And the Kurds mm-hmm. are also among the United States' greatest allies in the fight over there. How do you manage these shifting alliances, these complicated relationships? It's a great question, and it's a simple answer. That is what happens when there is not leadership. When you don't have, when in the absence of American leadership, true American leadership, comprehensive strategy, commitment to that strategy, commitment to moving forward and defeating ISIS on some faster timetable. In the absence of true leadership, all of these fissures and factions uh, become exacerbated and you have the kinds of problems you're seeing. But we're talking about problems that have existed for millennia. How does leadership trump, for lack of a better word, <laughs> those, kinds of, those kinds of deep enmities. Well, I don't, I'm not pretending at all. I won't pretend that they're, they're easy to solve. But what I will say is the Turks do have good relations with some Kurds. So there, there is, you know, it, it's not like writ large, they're just so committed to opposing all Kurds. There are some groups, of course, the Kurds have more problems with. Those problems have gotten worse over the last several months in the absence, I believe, of American leadership. 
So yes, they're challenging, but they do have to be managed. And one thing is for sure, if the United States sits back like it has over the last several years, those problems get worse, not better. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy, but it can be done. It will not be done without American leadership. Will it be done without American troops on the ground to help make your plan a success? Well, I don't think that should be taken. U.S. troops, conventional forces should be taken off the table. I do think that we have the opportunity to defeat ISIS uh, with uh, through our friendly forces on the ground, not our own U.S. troops. I do think uh, special operators, special forces, U.S. special forces should be on the ground there, uh, as well as, as CIA operatives. Um, but I, I do not think we need conventional forces, but I also do not think it should be taken off the table. That's why our alliances are so important. And that's why it, it troubles me so much that President Obama and, and now Donald Trump have so damaged our, our alliances, Donald Trump even more so. Because our alliances are what allow us to lead without uh, tremendous cost and blood and treasure to ourselves. You know, we need to have skin in the game, too, and we certainly do. Um, But we need our allies in order to be more effective on a more cost-effective basis. North Korea. North Korea, well, obviously another country that's been emboldened by the withdrawal of U.S. leadership in the world. I think really the answer to that is that we've got to convince China that it has more to gain through ultimately a unified, uh, a unified Korean peninsula uh, under the leadership of, of Seoul and not Pyongyang. Right now, China has to, China's playing this weird game where they don't, uh, or well, I think a self-defeating game is probably a better way to put it. China doesn't believe, China, China doesn't want North Korea to be nuclear armed. Uh, they want stability in North Korea. Uh, but they also don't want a unified peninsula because they prefer to have a buffer there between what they consider uh, South Korea. They consider South Korea to be U.S. backed. They would rather have a buffer there between uh, a U.S. backed South Korea and, uh, and and themselves. Can they can they actually control Kim Jong Un, the leader of North Korea? Control, I think, would be a strong word. I, I think he's a particularly uh, tough uh, character to control. But they do provide him a lot of support that he takes for granted. And they, they feel uh, particularly chagrined right now over that. They understand he takes their support, their financial and uh, aid and, and energy support for granted. I think the Chinese are actually coming around to what I'm describing. We need to help them get there. That's what the answer is. We need the Chinese to understand that they're much better off. They'll have much more security much better trade uh, through working with us, ultimately unifying the Korean Peninsula. Although on trade, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is all about blunting China's influence in that region. Both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are on record saying that they do not support TPP and that they will do everything to scuttle it if they are elected. If you are elected, will you go through with TPP? And do you view it as the Obama administration views it as not only a trade pact, but also a geopolitical pact to blunt the influence of China in the region. And that's correct. And it is it is that. And it should be viewed through that prism in addition to the national security, national prism. security prism, in addition to the, the, the strictly trade economic prism. So that's absolutely true. And your question about, you know, uh, about that, about whether uh, whether we can get there, or we want to get there, given that we're trying to uh, this is a, sort of a power play. TPP is uh, vis-a-vis China. Uh, the question is whether uh, whether that's consistent with what I described. But see, we don't desire to have to to have to do that with China. 
And, and what we just talked about with North Korea and South Korea is a perfect example of that. If we can convince China that it has more to gain through working with democratic countries than it does supporting a communist country, then we're winning that effort. And then we, we have to worry less about the geo, geopolitical implications of China's rise and its continued communism, or at least its uh, ruling communist party. Russia. Russia, yes. Well, Russia is a country, Vladimir Putin specifically, and his government is a country that has been emboldened again by the withdrawal of U.S. leadership. They have uh, carried out attacks, uh, overt and covert attacks, in at least two additional countries this year, that, those being Ukraine, of course, and Syria. And so the first answer is that we need to reassert ourselves as, as we were before, I think, President Obama's tenure. And, uh, and that will help. What does that mean? That means strengthening our allies. That means uh, committing, uh, recommitting to NATO. That means making sure that our allies on Russia's border uh, really do have our support. That may mean, you know, uh, returning uh, the positioning of additional troops and equipment in, into that region. Uh, it certainly means, at, at a first step, communicating to Russia that we will not tolerate uh, their attacks on on sovereignty, on the sovereignty of Eastern Europe. A lot of the the hacking that's taken that's taken place, particularly mm-hmm. at the Democratic National mm-hmm. Committee, the fingers are pointing back to Russia. Should the United States retaliate in some way? And it's not just against the DNC. The mm-hmm. Russians are hacking. Um, State Department, Pentagon, White House computer systems. Even if it were just the DNC, absolutely, we cannot let this stand. Uh, The Russians, uh, Vladimir Putin and his government, I want to be clear about that. This isn't the Russian people. This is Vladimir Putin and his government. They are attacking our democracy. So on the cyber front, yes, we can't let these things stand. So what do we do? What we need to do is certainly there are, we need to strengthen our cyber countermeasures. Uh, We do have offensive capabilities. You want to be very judicious about how you use those because once you use them, they're exposed and you sort of want to keep them on reserve for when you really, really need them. Uh, But I do think that we need to, uh, countries that attack us uh, in that way using cyber, methods need to pay a price. That can be a diplomatic price. That can be an economic price. If it's bad enough, it, it, it can be a more serious price, uh, a more a military-delivered price. Um, but, but we can't allow this. I, I do believe that these attacks are attacks on our sovereignty. And we're living in a new day, and, and we have, we're living in a new day and age when we have this virtual realm that was, didn't exist before. But we need to sort of catch up and realize that, yes, these are attacks on our sovereignty. When we have the Chinese stealing our intellectual property from our companies, that is an attack on our sovereignty. When we have uh, Russian government, the Russian government, the Iranians or others uh, attacking our electrical uh, grid, that also is, is a, of course, an attack on our sovereignty or on our political process. And let me say a word about that. Uh, Putin and his government are clearly attacking our democracy. Uh, And they're attacking our democracy in the same way that they've attacked the democracies in Europe. How do they do that? They first foment divisions, often along racial and ethnic lines within a country. Then they promote and even fund uh, and promote with, uh, with rhetoric and with propaganda the campaigns of people who capitalize, of politicians who then capitalize on those divisions and that hatred and that nationalism, that inward-facing uh, ideology. 
And then, and, and we're seeing that in Donald Trump. That's exactly what uh, Putin has done in other countries in Europe, and that's what he's doing through Trump in America. So just by what you just said there, Trump is either a witting or unwitting agent of Vladimir Putin? Oh, there's no question. Oh, there's absolutely no question. And this it's not just me saying this. This is everyone who comes from my in, from the Central Intelligence Agency. This was our this is our business. This was my business. Uh, we understand how this works. And that's why you have Central Intelligence Agency veterans on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans stepping up like me saying this is what's happening and we must reject it. That that should be a red flag and a signal to all Americans that this is something to pay attention to. Well, let's talk about your background since you sure. brought it up, the CIA. Mm-hmm. When did you get there? How did you get there? Why did you go? Mm-hmm. When was this? Well, I, I served with the CIA from 1999 to 2010. Uh, I first became interested in, in serving in the Central Intelligence Agency when I was a young man, and my dad brought home a VHS tape from Blockbuster. Yeah, the movie was Three Days of the Condor. It was a Robert Redford spy it's a film. Great movie. Yeah, you've seen it. Okay, oh, yeah. so few several times. Okay, great. So few people have seen it, and I always tell people, look, if you want to watch one spy film, watch that one. But that's that captured my imagination, and I started reading every book I could about that, about the agency. I'd wanted to be a filmmaker before, but I, that I, that fell by the wayside. Did you actually pursue that? Uh, well, I was in junior high at the time, but we made oh, okay. we made films. We did make films, and I thought they were quite good. Now, if I saw them now, I th- I'd, I'd probably be embarrassed. But, but anyway, I read every book I could, and once I got to high school, I co- I contacted the CIA. To make a long story short, they laughed at me, but I called back in a couple of weeks and got to a recruiter, and we would stay in touch for a few years after that. And then they hired me while I was in college, and I would do a semester in Washington and a semester back in, in, in Utah where I was in school until I graduated. And at that point, I went undercover, went through training, and 9-11 happened at the beginning of that. And once, once I finished, I, was, uh, I volunteered to serve in South Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa. And this was all undercover you did those assignments I was undercover, after. yes. What? I, I don't even know where to, be, where to begin. Can you even talk mm-hmm. about what it's like being mm-hmm. undercover for, for the CIA? I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. lots of movies, including mm-hmm. Three Days, Three Days, of, Three the Days of the Condor mm-hmm. movie. And I mean, I love that genre. So I have an idea, the Hollywood version. Does the sure. Hollywood version of mm-hmm. uh, undercover CIA work match mm-hmm. what it actually is? I would say if, you, if you're looking for recent accurate depictions of what it's like, uh, I would point to Argo mm-hmm. and I would point to Zero Dark Thirty. And especially on that ladder, I can the latter one I can say with confidence that that is an accurate portrayal. Like a chill just went through me. Were you there? Uh, I I will uh, I was not there when when Osama bin Laden was killed. Um, I will say that uh, that I participated in our efforts to uh, to locate and destroy Al Qaeda leadership. I don't even know what to ask next. I mean, <laughs> so so you were at the CIA, and I heard somewhere uh, in another interview that you mm-hmm. did that you also had this Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. piece of your life. When did mm-hmm. that happen? Well, uh, eventually I completed my CIA service. Uh, I thought at that point that we had gotten things under control. Uh, and I left and attended Wharton and earned an MBA there. And while I was there, I started working for Goldman Sachs in its investment banking division doing mergers and acquisitions and IPOs. So there are people out there, this whole campaign has been about 
distrusting Wall Street. The establishment is bought and paid for by Wall Street. Uh, Bernie, Senator Bernie Sanders gave Hillary Clinton the blues over her connections to, to Wall Street. Big money, millionaires and billionaires. You Why? do that well, by the way. A little too well. It's been a little too, it, well. it's been a little too long. <laughs> but what do you say to people who hear this Goldman Sachs Wall Street connection and think, I can't vote for this guy. Everything he said up until this point was great, but he's too tied to things as they are. Well, I think the real issue is that people feel that the big banks have been advantaged over regular people in America. And and I think that's valid. I mean, I've worked for the CIA. I've worked for Goldman Sachs. I've worked for Congress. These are big, powerful institutions that need oversight and scrutiny. So that's the, so I think it's valid. I think if you're going to be if you're going to have a lot of power, your organization or you as a person, uh, then you you will attract and should uh, more scrutiny. So I think that's fair. I think that's fine. Um, but I'm not you know beholden to to the big banks or to Goldman Sachs. And I understand the struggles of American people. Uh, you know I tell people that yeah you know, I worked very hard for everything I have in life, including the opportunity to have a, an experience like I did at Goldman Sachs, where I learned things that all presidents should know, namely what it takes for companies to thrive in the global marketplace and to create high-paying jobs in America. I worked with all kinds of industries and learned those lessons. But even more importantly, you know, I grew up in a family that really struggled. I mean, we, you know, we wore winter coats inside our, our house uh, during the winter because we couldn't afford to turn the heat on. And then eventually we got a wood stove and we would spend all summer gathering wood scraps at lumber yards in order to heat the house. And this is in Washington State. This is in Washington yeah. State. Yeah. I mean, there were there were times when I, I would overhear my parents talking about losing the house. Uh, we didn't have money for school clothes. My aunt used to buy those for us. I mean, other people had it worse than than we did. I don't mean to paint some sob story that, you know, uh, you know, it's all relative. But but we struggled. And my, I saw my parents, I saw my dad wake up, at, he was a computer programmer for the power company in Seattle and for, and, he, and, and for Boeing before that. He would get up at 3 a.m. and deliver papers in, the, you know, in our little Volkswagen bus, and then he would drive an hour and 15 minutes into work, and he was paid in quarters, and I never heard the man complain. And sometimes I would get up and deliver those papers with him and then go to school or and then you know, have my day on a Saturday or whatever. But... You know, my mom ran a small business out of our garage. She would buy food. It was like Costco before Costco. She would buy food in bulk and then sell it at discounted prices to to the neighborhood uh, or to the area. It was sort of a rural area, but people would come and buy that food. Uh, that was what I experienced growing up, and it was a struggle, you know. And, and that continued through college. I put myself through college, and luckily, was the CIA hired me. That saved me, I, and I had a scholarship. But you know, life has been a fight for me, and I and I, I get that. This presidential campaign is a fight for mm. you. Um, you're running for president of the United States, but you're not on the ballot in all 50 states. How many states mm. are you up to now? Well, I think we're officially on the ballot in 11 or 12 states, and then we're registered as a write-in for another 11, I think. So it's you know somewhere between 20 and, two, 20 and 22 states in which people will be able to cast a, a vote for me if the election were held right now. But actually, by November 8th, we'll be registered as a write-in or appearing on the ballot in 40 to 45 states. The vast majority of, of Americans will be able to cast a vote for me. But actually, it's important to note that most campaigns, I mean, even Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, major party campaigns, they're not focused 
focusing on all 50 states. I mean, sure, it's great to be on the ballot in all 50, but really presidential campaigns are about focusing on a smaller number of states, and in particular with goals like ours, which are our electoral goal is to prevent Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump from gaining a majority in the Electoral College, while ourselves uh, also winning uh, some electoral votes, which would then take the the election to the House, and the, the House would then decide the election. But then the House, which is controlled by the Republican Party, mm-hmm. would then have every incentive to hand the presidency to Donald Trump. So what do you say mm-hmm. to the American people who might love lots of what you've said in this podcast and mm-hmm. might consider voting for you, but now knowing this, thinks, mm-hmm. I don't want to throw my vote away? Uh, Well, first of all, let me address a couple of things. I'll address what the House would do, but let me address the the notion of throwing your vote away, because I think that's a a theme in this election that that I think we've got to pull ourselves away from. That's the lesser of two evils argument. I heard a preacher the other day say, if you're voting for the lesser of two evils, you're still voting for evil. (laughs) And I Mm. thought that was very good. If we want better leaders in this country, we've got to vote for better leaders in this country. And we've been sold, I think, by the incumbent parties and the incumbent politicians, the lesser of two evils argument for a long time. And it suits them. Why does it suit them? Because it lowers our standards for them and and means they don't have to live up to a higher standard of leadership and makes it easier for them to go on their merry way, not actually leading us, not actually looking out for our interests, and not actually making this country a better place, unifying this country, ensuring its uh, security and prosperity. So we need to start, our vote, I believe, is a sacred thing, and we need to start casting it for good men and women who are honest and wise to lead this country. Now, with regard to the House, Uh, Look, if we are successful in denying Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump a majority in the Electoral College, which is a hard thing to do, but if we're able to do it, that will, I believe, reset the election. And then there will be a true three-way race between Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and me. And I think we will then have a, a fair opportunity to make the case to the American people that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are both unfit for the responsibilities they seek and that I am a better choice for president for this country. And if we're able to do that, I think uh, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to be successful in the House. I'm the only true conservative in this race. And so and I align with with the positions of the House Republicans far better than Donald Trump does. He doesn't even come close. I come from the House. That's where I was most recently as the chief policy director for the House Republicans. I was there when we were developing the the better way agenda that that uh, Paul Ryan is advancing. So I align with them on policies as as far as the Democrats are concerned. They're going to have a choice to make between Donald Trump and me because they won't be able to elect Hillary Clinton because they'll be in the minority. So I believe that that they, too, I I think I can be a consensus vote in that scenario. Why do you think your former boss, Speaker Paul Ryan, to this day stands by his uh, endorsement of Donald Trump? Uh, well, I'll say that I want to clarify that I worked for the House Republican Conference, which was chaired by Kathy McMorris-Rogers, okay. and she's another member of Congress. I did work with, with Paul Ryan's staff and, and participate in the leadership of the House, but I want to make very clear mm-hmm. that he, Paul Ryan was not my direct— uh, My mistake. Yes, yeah. No, no, that's fair. A lot of people make it, but I need to make that clear. I want to make that clear. Uh, but the question is why he continues to support Donald Trump. I think he's trying to create space for members of the House to position themselves where they want. 
want on Donald Trump in order for Republicans to protect their majority in the House. I understand that strategy. I think that's a good, logical strategy for the short term. The issue that I have with that is that it fails to uh, appropriately stand up to Donald Trump's bigotry and to his allegiance to Vladimir Putin and to his lack of fitness, his narcissism, his unsuitability for the presidency of the United States. Evan McMullen, independent candidate for president of the United States. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.